0: Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Jake Novak, and today I want to dedicate the entire half hour to something I hope you heard on Nachum's uh, morning show today, which is the case of Bob Levinson. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter at NY or my Facebook page, just look up the name Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. Uh, You may already know some of the story, but most of you almost certainly do not, because most Americans have not heard of the name Robert Levinson or Bob Levinson. Most Americans don't know what his situation is, and that's got to stop, especially when it comes to the American Jewish community. So I'm going to rewind here and and give you an idea in case you missed Nachum's show earlier this morning, or in case you haven't heard of the name Robert Levinson. Let me give you some of the most important facts first. Robert Levinson is the longest-held American hostage in American history. He has currently been held as a hostage by the Iranians for 11 years, 9 months, and 7 days. You heard me right. He has been a hostage for almost 12 years. Robert Levinson was taken hostage in March of 2007, While he was doing an interview on a place called Kish Island. Kish Island is officially part of Iran, but it's a trade-free open zone, which means you don't need a visa to go there. Uh, Americans even don't need a visa to go there. It's kind of a free zone for a lot of people around the world, and thus it becomes a magnet for organized crime. That's why he was there. Robert Levinson was there to interview and investigate Russian organized crime figures, Robert Levinson had been an agent for the FBI for many years, retiring officially in 1998, but he continued to do contract work and investigative work, and we believe he was working in this case for the Central Intelligence Agency, the American CIA. But whatever reason, for whatever reason he was taken hostage by the Iranians there, we believe that they were basically looking for an American to take, really didn't have much to do With anything specifically that Levinson was doing, although it turns out Levinson had some information the Iranians should be worried about, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Robert Levinson was taken, and whether or not the Iranians knew he was Jewish or not when they took him is not clear, but they certainly learned that soon enough. Uh, Obviously, he has a Jewish last name. Most people named Levinson you would meet on the street you know are Jewish, it should not matter, but for those of you who are wondering, no, Robert Levinson was not an observant Jew or really lived as anything other than just a person who was born Jewish to Jewish parents. The whole thing I certainly did not ever deny that; He just was not a practicing or observing Jew. Uh, he lives in the he lived in the Florida area. His family is still there. Seven children. Robert Levinson is now seventy years old, so he has been taken. Uh, he has been in prison in, in hostage situation with the Iranians since he was fifty eight and, and a half or so. If you can imagine those years of your lives of your life in a hostage situation he 's also a diabetes sufferer. We believe that he is you know his, his health has is much deteriorated as we would expect but the last time that the international community acknowledged that Robert Levinson was still alive was in 2011 when pictures of Levinson looking very thin with a very long white beard and with holding some pictures with broken English on them. That was the last time we we saw any proof of life of Robert Levinson. But we believe he is still alive. We believe that very strongly. And something that I found out several months ago leads me to believe without any doubt at all that Robert Levinson is still alive. Again, if you listen to Nachum's show this morning, you heard my very good friend, former Air Force Captain Bob Kent, tell Robert Levinson's story and tell us about how he came into the story. Now, Bob Kent is a, a very good, like I said, he, he's someone who's been a close friend of mine for about 30 years. I met Bob when I was in college at Columbia. Bob was your kind of stereotypical football player, if there is any such thing like that at an Ivy League school. Uh, One of the great things about Ivy League athletics, and in particular Ivy League football, one of the things that made me a big fan of it, I was already a sports fan, but when I got to Columbia after a couple months, I realized, hey, these guys taking the same classes as I am are also practicing at the end of every day and playing football. And no, Columbia doesn't have the greatest uh, track record in football, but um, FYI, we've been a very good team the last couple of years. Uh, we've won like 15 of our last 21 games. We've been a really top team the last couple of seasons, had a couple of winning seasons in a row. So you can be a, a smart student and a good football player if anyone's wondering. Um, but Bob was just a star player on the football team, defensive lineman, big guy, uh, but with a heart of gold. And perhaps even more stereotypically, he began dating one of the cheerleaders at Columbia uh, very early on, and they got married. And then all the stereotypes, you just throw him in the garbage. First thing is is that Bob's wife, Claire, ended up going to uh, one of the top business schools in the country for graduate school at UC Berkeley and graduated like at the top of her class. Bob ended up going to law school and was interested in the law and, and did well there, but after a couple of years decided that it wasn't really a meaningful enough career for him and he decided to join the military. He joined the military, he joined the United States Air Force as an officer in, get this, April of 2001, and he was deployed overseas just a couple of days after the 9-11 attacks. I mean, his timing was was quite interesting, Uh, but never did Bob feel like his timing was bad. I mean, this was someone who was, again, looking for some meaning in his life, a little bit more meaning in his career. His life was plenty meaningful, but he was looking for a more meaningful career, and he certainly got that after the 9-11 attacks. He ended up becoming a U.S. Air Force intelligence officer for the Air Force in Saudi Arabia and other places during the first Gulf War. And then after the Gulf War, they kind of shoot him out of the military because he had an old football injury that I guess the military didn't want to have to be, continue to resp- to be responsible for. And then he became what we often call in the news media or in our vernacular, a private contractor. Uh, very often going back into places in the Middle East like Yemen and Afghanistan and Iraq and finding out whether places were safe or not to invest in. Finding out other things, and also working very hard to break up and rescue people from the human trafficking markets that are existing in both Libya and Iraq, right, and Iraq right now. In fact, Bob is part of an organization that is trying to eliminate those slave markets. There's really no other word for it. You know, on a side note, you can look this up, it's an absolute truth. There are actually more people in slavery and a more robust slave trade in the world right now than there was in the 17th and 18th and 19th century, if you can believe it. Because of the mayhem in the Middle East, and because of the acceptance of human trafficking in that part of the world among those cultures, it's just running rampant. Running rampant. And one of my many wishes that did not come true over the last 10 years was the night that the movie 12 Years a Slave won the Oscar. Remember, remember that movie 12 Years a Slave about an African-American slave here in the United States uh, in the 19th century and that won Best Picture that year for the Academy Award. And as they were calling up the director and, and the other folks to come up and accept that award, I was praying. I thought to myself, boy, wouldn't it be great if they all got up there and said, hey, Slavery in the 19th century here in the United States was terrible. But did you know, folks, all you billion people watching, that slavery now is running even more rampant throughout the world? And of course, they didn't say that. And I don't know if they didn't say it because they didn't know. I don't know if they didn't say it because certain folks only want to blame white people for slavery. I don't know why they didn't say it, but they didn't. And talk about a missed opportunity. Well, Bob Kent hasn't missed the opportunity to try to wipe that out. But getting back to his connection to the Levinson case here on Novak Now, on the Nahum Siegel Network, Bob Kent was tracking an Al-Qaeda terrorist. One of the things Bob does is he tries to find these terrorists and neutralize them, even though he's no longer with the United States Air Force. He was tracking an Al-Qaeda terrorist, and in so doing, that Al-Qaeda terrorist had a contact with the folks who who are holding Bob Levinson, that are, are hostage, and by accident, totally by accident, my friend Bob Kent stumbled upon evidence that Bob Levinson is not only still alive, but where he's being held in Iran and, and proof of life. Now, where do we come in? Because we do come in here in this story in more than just a rooting interest. I know a lot of you listening are probably thinking, wow, this guy's an American, he's a Jew, where do I sign up to help him get out of there? Is there anything I can do? And the answer is there is. There is something that can be done in this situation that we should really, really think about. What Bob has been doing for, really since April, is trying to get the United States government to approve what he needs to bring back the proof of life, a video of Bob Levinson alive, blood samples, DNA, the whole thing. The cost of that operation to get involved with his team of Kurds and other Iraqis and other people in the area who are friendly to the United States and friendly to him he needs $250,000. It's really not a lot of money. Now, I'm, believe it or not, I'm not, this show is not a fundraiser, although there is a GoFundMe page for Bob Levinson, and I would like you to, to, to check it out. But this is not a fundraiser. I'm not asking you to raise money here. What I'm asking the listeners here, especially Nachum Siegel Network listeners and anybody out there, is to start kicking in our very well-experienced and well-oiled machine of Jewish activism, because Jewish activism, ac- activism is pretty strong, from my memory, you know, and from what, what I understand it to be. You know, I'm, I'm 47, almost 48 years old. I grew up in those years where every year, hundreds of thousands of us would march for Soviet jewelry, And you know it worked. You know it worked. It was one of the things that, when the Soviet Union started to crumble, it was an easy thing for the Gorbachev government to, to start to loosen up on, because they, were ne- they needed good PR at that time. It worked even before Gorbachev because, you know, governments that were not collapsing at the time, like Brezhnev's government, every once in a while to get some goodwill in the West, they would open up the Iron Gates, you know, the Iron Curtain a little bit, and let some Jews out. Many of you remember the large number that came out in 1979 and settled all over the United States. And that was, a lot had, had to do with Soviet Jewish, active, pro, for Soviet Jewish activism by American Jews, and perhaps you've heard me talk about on Novak now or seen some of my columns writing about the history of that movement because it's fascinating. It's a fascinating movement. The, the, the Soviet Jewry movement in this country uh, is one of those things that you probably don't know how grassroots it was. You know, the larger Jewish organizations, and I'm not going to name any of them because the point here is not to embarrass anybody. I want to, I want to lift people up here. So I'm going to lift up the young people who, who made a difference in Soviet Jewry. But suffice it to say, the organized Jewish organizations, the big ones, had failed. Had failed miserably on Soviet Jewry for a number of reasons, not the least of which, and maybe the number one reason was, they were all convinced that the Jews that were in the Soviet Union didn't really want to be free. From the Soviet Union, any more than any other non Jew would. In other words, they didn't believe they really had any Jewish identity left. And by the way, this is a mistake they had made many times. We know that when Golda Meir went and visited the Soviet Union in 1948 as foreign minister, when news got out that she was going to be going to the synagogue in Moscow, which was basically just a museum at that time for Rosh Hashanah, uh, all, it seemed like all of, the, of Jewish Moscow came out to you just get a glimpse of her. It was a mob scene. Massive numbers of people, and people, by the way, who, who ended up at that mob scene were arrested by the Soviets. Not everyone, obviously, but some were, some were made an example of. But this is a mistake that the larger Jewish organizations had made, and young students from schools like Ramaz and the Yeshiva of Flatbush and Yeshiva University and Stern College, all those places really took the lead in a grassroots movement to stand up for Soviet Jewry, starting in the late 60s and going into the early 1970s. And they made the difference, because by the time 1975 rolled around, and for those of you who are very historically astute, you'll know why 1975 is an important date. It's an important year because that was when the Helsinki Accords were signed, when basically the Soviet Union was pressured into some kind of recognition that they needed to do better on human rights. And Soviet Jewry was included in that agreement, thanks to that grassroots movement that it had snowballed and snowballed and snowballed into a major Jewish organizational movement. And then the major big Jewish organizations got involved. And from 1975, all the way to, I'd say, 1988, when we had that big march, or well, the big march was in 1987, December of 87, uh, in DC, and a lot of you listening probably were there, I was, um, with with my school at the time. But by that time, you had a large segment of, Jewish popula- of the Jewish population in this country from top to bottom, Orthodox to Reform, very much mobilized to help Soviet Jewry. And it worked. And it worked. Now, I'm not expecting 200,000 people to march on Washington to get Robert Levinson out tomorrow or next, time, or next month. But I am hoping that we can use that same sentiment because, look, folks, for those of you who are Orthodox I'm talking to you here, I know that you have compassion for all Jews no matter what, but remember, especially, those Soviet Jews who we were marching for all those years ago, we know they didn't know an Allah from a bet. We know that a lot of them actually did not have much interest in living a religious Jewish life, but they knew they were ethnically Jewish, and they were proud of that, or they at least were aware of it. So, of course, Robert Levinson is just like that in many ways, and and we need, as Jews and Americans, to be concerned about him and do what we can for him. And what can we do? Right now, it's awareness— You know, the the biggest problem we're dealing with at this point is that most Americans and certainly most American Jews have never heard of Bob Levinson, don't know his situation, don't know that he's a Jew, and also don't know another fact, which is the fact that he's Jewish is a big reason why he's been in captivity for so long. And here's why. The Iranians are, you know, it's a nefarious regime by by any measure. But one of the things that the Iranians like to do is to take a look at who might be a prisoner or who might be a, a real enemy and, and classify them in different ways. And because he's a Jew, Robert Levinson, in the Iranian regime's calculations, is, is, does not really deserve human rights. To them, all Jews are illegitimate. To them, all Jews are likely agents of Israel. And Bob Levinson is certainly not that. But to them, that's who they are, and so they don't deserve human rights recognition. Now, I believe that if Bob Levinson had not been a Jew, the Iranians probably would have released him by now. So again, his Judaism, no matter how much he practices it, no matter how much he identifies as it, it doesn't matter. The Iranians see him as a Jew. He is (laughs) ethnically and logically a Jew, right? And that's why he's been, uh, a big reason why he's been in custody longer than anyone else would have been. That's important. That's really important. So what people like Bob Kent and I are trying to do and have been trying to do is lately just trying to get his story out there. Uh, I've been able to get Bob Kent on a couple of news networks to tell this story. Obviously, he came on to Tanakhem's show this morning and, ta- and told the story and the story needs to get out there. So for those of you who are active on so you know what I'm going to say. For those of you who are active on social media, get on social media. Link to the archive of Nachum's show. Link to the archive of this show, which I'll put on my own Twitter feed, at Jake Jake NY uh, later today when it's available. Link to it. Tell the story. Let your friends know. Pass along some articles that I'll be writing about it that will be available. And again, will also be on my Twitter and Facebook pages, so you can find them easily and share them. Let's get this story out there. Let's get this story out there. Now I'm going to give you the cloak and dagger aspect of the story, as if we already don't have one. I mean, I'm talking about trying to advocate for a rescue mission inside Iran, which I know sounds impossible probably to some of you. And for those of you who remember the hostage rescue attempt that the United States and President Carter attempted in 1980, I want to make it clear this is a much different kind of situation. I'm not going to use the word easy, but I am going to say we're talking about one person. We're talking about one person who is not guarded by a lot of guards. We're talking about a group of elite, elite paramilitary folks who are not American troops from the United States, but are relatively local to the area and know what they're dealing with. So I want to be more optimistic about it, and I have strong feeling, strong reasons to be optimistic about it. But let me give you some more of the cloak and dagger stuff here, because as much as I'd like to blame this only on the Iranians... Unfortunately, we can't. Unfortunately, we can't. Because Bob Levinson has been a person that, at least the previous administration in Washington and probably the administration before that one, those administrations weren't all that upset about him staying in Iranian custody and being forgotten. Bob Kent tells me that, and has told me for months, that Bob Levinson had some information for years, about American officials who had connections with Iranian operatives in Washington, D.C., including one Iranian operative who is now sort of like the head imam at the mosque in Manassas, Virginia. For those of you who know D.C. geography, Manassas is a suburb of Washington. It's where the Battle of Bull Run was, by the way, for you, his Civil War historians. Um, it's considered a suburb of D.C. It's a little bit out there. It's, it's not a close, close suburb, but it's a suburb of Washington, D.C., And there's a mosque there that's been growing in influence, and the leader of that mosque is an Iranian man who is a notorious double agent. Sometimes he's helped us. I assume he helped us in the wars against Iraq, probably, since Iraq and Iran are such mortal enemies. And sometimes he doesn't help us. But he's an Iranian agent all the way. All the way. And Bob Levinson, as I've been told, has some information about how that guy has had connections with some members of the Obama, Obama administration, potentially the Bush administration, you can see why Bob Levinson remaining in custody uh, and forgotten would be in the interest of some folks in D.C. We believe that Bob Levinson was also sacrificed by the Obama administration and secretary and then Secretary of State John Kerry in the Iran nuclear deal. In other words, the United States agreed to let that one go, to not press on Bob Levinson, to not press for his release in return for the Iranians agreeing to some part of the Iranian nuclear deal, which, of course, is a big victory for them anyway. Why we needed to do anything to cajole them to sign an agreement which was an incredibly favorable agreement for them, and not so much for us and the rest of the world, I don't know, but apparently he was a bargaining chip there as well. And there are reports that Bob Levinson was on the tarmac and in an airplane to leave Iran all the way back in 2010, but then Secretary of State Clinton blocked that, transfer for whatever reason. We don't know. We don't know. We're dealing here with a lot of nefarious stuff. We're dealing here with a lot of immoral stuff. And what we've seen in the American news media, which is almost nothing about Bob Levinson, but the Associated Press several years ago did a report about how Bob Levinson was working as a contractor for the CIA, which I think everyone kind of agrees to now. But they made that sound. If you look at the tone of that story, if you want to look it up, the tone of that story almost makes it sound like, yeah, he deserved it. He was a spy for the CIA and they took him, which is not the case. He may have been working for the CIA, but he was there to look into Russian organized crime. And he had every right to do that there on Kish Island, an open island where organized criminals like to hang out, like to put their money, like to run some of their operations, especially those who who are in Europe. So we're not talking about somebody here who was doing something threatening to Iran. We're not talking about somebody here who was dealing with arms or or trying to sell weapons or something like that. We're dealing with someone who was trying to get to the bottom of a crime and working in an honest way. And he's been a hostage for 11 years and nine months and one week. And it's way too long. And I'm sorry to play the comparative game here and the whataboutism game here, but I think it's necessary because of the climate that we're in right now in the United States and in Washington in particular. Now, a lot of you know we've heard for the last couple of months now, every day and sometimes more than once a day, loud complaining and crying over the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Now, again, not going to go any further without saying we're certainly not condoning the death of an apparently unarmed man, no matter what crime they have done. I mean, if even if someone had done something that was a capital offense, you don't kill them in a in a, in a, in a consulate uh, with God knows what tools they used to kill Jamal Khashoggi. Okay? And I'm saying they because I'm not 100% sure these were direct associates of the regime in Saudi Arabia right now. Were they, were they Saudis who killed him? Absolutely. Were they working directly for the real ruler of Saudi Arabia right now because the, the king is sort of out of it? Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince? That we don't know. The CIA has said that he, he was, they were. The U.S. Senate has just decided to denounce him over it, although I, I, you know, I, I'm not 100% convinced. If it were the true, I wouldn't be surprised. But here's what I want to talk about on that. Jamal Khashoggi, first of all, if you see any news item about him where they call him a journalist, you have to throw some cold water on that. Jamal Khashoggi is not a, not a journalist. All right? Writing a column every once in a while for the Washington Post and living in a really, really nice neighborhood in D.C. with four kids doesn't add up. All right? He wasn't a journalist. What we know about Jamal Khashoggi was that he was, a, he was patronized by Prince Alawi bin Talal, who was one of the richest people and was the richest person in Saudi Arabia until very recently. Bin Talal had to cut him off at Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince's urging. And then he went to get other sources of funding, which we believe was probably the Iranians, either via Turkey, maybe through Qatar, we don't know. Jamal Khashoggi was a fan I repeat, a fan of the 9-11 attacks. He praised the 9-11 attacks. Jamal Khashoggi was a fan of the Muslim Brotherhood. Does that mean he should have been murdered without a trial? No. But Jamal Khashoggi is not, A, an American. He was here on a, a, a type of visa, which is a very low-level visa. In other words, needs to get re, re-upped all the time. He was not even a green card holder. He was not an American citizen. He was involved in all kinds of clandestine work and PR communication work for bad dudes. The Muslim Brotherhood, supporting 9-11, wasn't a journalist. He was an advocate for a lot of groups and a lot of ideas that are no good. And he certainly was not an American. And yet his murder, or his killing has been treated by so many people in the American news media as if it was the greatest tragedy and a real hero. And yes, he was one of the people who Time Magazine decided to make their person of the year just last week, despite the fact that, I'm sorry, he's just not deserving of that designation, to put him among some real journalists, because the the other awardees were some true journalists, whether you like them or not. They were true journalists who would truly risk their lives for the truth and for journalism. Khashoggi risked his life for his benefactors, who were terrorists. Khashoggi risked his life for his political agenda, not for the ideal of journalism, because he wasn't a journalist. And so what I'm asking for, what I'm coming around to here, is to make everyone make that comparison. These crocodile tears that people are crying for, Jamal Khashoggi, if they don't, they're not deserved. We should be crying for, we should be speaking up for Robert Levinson. An American, a Jew, someone who's been held for hostage for 11 years and nine months, and someone who has been in that long captivity mostly because he is a Jew, secondly because he's an American, and thirdly because we're dealing with the Iranians who take hostages. That's what they do. That's what they've done since they became a regime. Since they became a regime in 1979 that ruled that country, hostage-taking has been their thing, either directly or by proxy. That's what they do. And it's not acceptable. And one of the good things about what we're trying to do for Bob Levinson is the money that we need, the money that I believe Bob Kent's going to get from more friendly Trump appointees in the FBI, for example, to go get the proof of life is that this is not a payoff. This isn't like the Iran deal where we're going to be paying off his captors. The money is to get the tape out. The money is to get the people who are hoping to rescue him safe and out of there as well. And it's not a lot. We're talking about $250,000 in the world of international espionage. That's nothing. So the money hopefully will come from the FBI in the coming days. Hopefully Bob Kent will be on a plane in the coming days. And hopefully, most importantly, Bob Levinson will be coming home in the coming weeks or days. And hopefully he'll be healthy enough, or at least we'll be able to treat him enough here in this country so that he can spend some good years with his family back here in the United States after such a long term of, of captivity. Bob Levinson, my friends, is a name we all need to know. He's a name like Sharansky that we need to know. No, he's not as heroically in, in hostage situation because he was a Jew and, and, and because he wants to live more of a Jewish life. But he's still a Jew in captivity. He's been in Jewish captivity for longer than Sharansky was. We need to stand up for him like we did in the past. This is Jake Novak on the Nachum Siegel Network. You've been listening to Novak Now. I hope to speak to you again next week.